All right, good evening. Thanks for coming out on, uh, was it fantastic half-price night? So I guess this is competition. Um, tonight we want to talk about the conclusion of the series that's been going on for two years on world languages. And I thought I would start by trying to address the question of what is language anyway? We keep talking about language. We've talked about a lot of specific languages, their cultural development, uh, their origins, their literatures. But, you know, what is a language anyway, and how does it come into being? So I thought it'd be good to start with that kind of background. In fact, it probably would have been good to start with that two years ago, but that's all right. <laughs> it occurs to me that better late than never is my operative principle here. Um, and... But I have to say, going in, this is swampy territory. If there's anything that's controversial, and has been controversial for a long time, it's the origin, structure, meaning, and how language works and what it does. Um, and a lot of material has been written, some good, some bad. Uh, some popular books have been written, not to single out any, but Steven Pinker springs to mind of bad. Um, Anybody familiar with the language instinct book? Is doubtless that language is an instinct in the human being. Pretty much the rest of the book, not very good. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but, but here's the notion. One thing to be, to be very clear on is language really is one of the key human faculties. Um, an anthropology professor, Dr. Dirk Vanderels, that I had, put it this way. He said, if you were locked up someplace, and on the person on your right was a fully grown adult, you know, human being who just had no language, was crazy, and couldn't talk to you, couldn't communicate at all. And an aunt who was, you know, well-educated and perfectly capable of speaking, who would you be more attracted to? <laughs> Right? And it's clear that it would be the ant, right? That, that when we think about human beings, we think of the physical structure of a human being, fingers and a certain size and a morphology, you know, all of this. But really, but what matters to us, probably above all else, is the capacity to communicate. It's this language use is what binds us, which makes us not biological creatures alone, isolate, but human beings socially, structurally, uh, linguistically, that, that this is a huge shaper and, and influencer of, of our lives. <clears throat> and so part of this is, you know, you know, how it evolved, again, hugely controversial, no one knows, you know, they do a lot of research, hard to track these things down. But at some point, we wanted to share, and there are some animals that can do this pretty well, nothing like us, of course, but you know, if, if, if we find water and we want to tell somebody that we've got water, right, we sort of point and maybe grunt or sing or something and then eventually get the idea across. And this grows and grows until, you know, you have fully formed language. And if you look at the, at the definition here from Webster's, good old Webster's, language, the words, their pronunciation, the methods of combining them, used and understood by a community. And it's by a community that matters. You cannot use language by yourself. This is, this is truly, um, if children are raised without exposure to language, they're permanently damaged. They, after a certain age, if it's like 14 or 15, um, it's horrible. You know, these kids who've been abused, locked in basements or closets or whatever, and, and no, almost no human interaction, 
They will never learn to speak. They'll never learn to communicate. They lose the capacity to understand human language. It's a horrible thing. But it, it, it is innate in us to be able to do it, but we can't do it on our own. It has to be with other human beings. Conversely, if you take three children who have no language and isolate them together, they will develop a language amongst themselves. So it's this interesting notion. You don't necessarily need a language imposed on you from the outside, although that's greatly helpful, because children will develop it. There's this interesting case, I think it was Nicaragua, where uh, some deaf children were abandoned uh, because of the war and just sort of all these orphans got left to their own devices for a long time, like two or three years. I forget all of the machinations. But when people finally got back to them, what had happened is they had developed a complete, rich sign language of their own. They had just, you know, left to their own devices. Some of the older kids taught the younger ones, and it evolved, and then they had a complete, so they could tell stories, they could communicate, imagination, history, everything. They, could, they had it all in, in a sign language of their own development. So this is interesting. It is necessarily a social thing. We have to have other people to communicate with for us to develop the faculty of language fully and to be completely human. But given any group of humans, we will do it. If you take five people who don't speak a common language at all and stick them together, in about a month, they'll be communicating perfectly well, no problem. They'll develop some intermediary language, and off they'll roll. This is, this is not a difficulty. So it's a fundamental human quality. But how it works is very peculiar. And this is one of the big controversies. Does language shape the worldview of the people who speak it? Does it matter what language you speak? Now, there are linguists who say, no, it doesn't, that language is essentially moderately neutral and that you can translate anything to any language and it all makes sense and so much. This is nonsense. Don't let anybody tell you this. This is utter complete crap. <laughs> this, is, this is, I've never heard such utter contemptible nonsense. Uh, first thing, I've never met anyone who spoke several languages who said this. Everybody I've ever talked to who speaks more than one or two languages always says, Wow, we've got this concept in Spanish for Arabic that it's just, I would love to translate, right? I'd love to have this, but you know, I can say it, but nobody really understands it. Um, and I thought, uh, one example of this, a small one, we'll look at some bigger ones, is this term, uh, litost, I think, from the Czech. Not sure on the pronunciation. Um, Mylon Kundera, the author of Unbearable Lightness of Being, remarked that, quote, as for the meaning of this word, I've looked in vain in other languages for an equivalent, though I find it difficult to imagine how anyone can understand the human soul without it. The closest definition is a state of agony and torment created by the sudden sight of one's own misery. What, 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 a, great, what a great, rich word that is. Uh, that, that there's, um, and again, there is no equivalent. So you can translate latost if you, if, you, if, if you needed to by saying the, is a state of agony created by the sudden sight of one's own misery. But this is very awkward and, and doesn't really work that well. There's a word in Russian that means to be pregnant. We have the word pregnant. But what it means is to be pregnant like Mary, which is to be pregnant with the Son of God. Now, this is a peculiar form of pregnancy. 
right? This isn't a random form of pregnancy, not an average form of pregnancy. And so you either have to translate it as, oh, you know, he had a pregnant thought, is often used sort of the way we use a pregnant idea. Or you can say he had a pregnant thought, pregnant like the way Mary was pregnant with the baby Jesus, which is just stupid sounding. <laughs> right? I mean, it just, you, you, it doesn't, like, it loses all of the, of the duende, if you will, another untranslatable <laughs> word. Um, so, so these sorts of problems are everywhere. But they aren't just, you know, sort of interesting sidelight words. They shape our whole conception of the world. Uh, another example I was thinking of is if you think of the word hell, right? Well, if, you're, if you're bad, you go to hell where you're tortured for eternity. What a great idea. I mean, really, what a, that's a really a wonderful idea that someone came up with uh, at some point. Now, that this idea, does, it does not exist in much of the world in much of world history. This is really sort of a, a new concept. Um, if you look at translations of the, of the Bible, Old and New Testament, there are some translations, the King James versions has, hell is used 54 times, but it translates about a couple of different Hebrew words, five or six different uh, Greek words, and a couple of other Latin words, none of which really mean hell. They take all those different words in different languages and translate it with the one concept of hell. There are other versions of the Bible, um, modern scholastic versions, that never use the word hell. They translate because they just say, you know, there is no equivalent to this concept that ever occurs. Uh, particularly in the, in, in the Septuagint and or the, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, um, there just is no concept of hell. So most good translations of the Old Testament for Jews do not have it. That word doesn't exist. And so in theory, you have two copies of the same book that have, one has a whole bunch of references to this word hell, and one has zero, right? Does, does that matter? Is this just the same idea with different words? Well, it turns out that the concept of hell and heaven seems to matter. Right? It's, this has been a, a, a hugely influential concept. People have died for fear of going to hell. People have done all kinds of things. I mean, it, it's just amazing how influenced. Heaven the same way. What have people done to try to get into heaven? Again, similarly, no, no, no clear equivalent in the ancient languages. It's sort of a, a new idea, 400-ish AD, when he starts coming into general usage. But many linguists will argue, I think, again, wrongly, that, oh, language represents our experiences. Well, sure, but what do you mean by experience? As far as we know, no one's been to hell. At least if they have, they haven't come back. <laughs> no one's been to heaven. If they have, they haven't come back. So we have no direct experience about this, but it certainly influences our conception of the world dramatically, hugely, right? Everybody clear on this. I mean, if you look at world history, these have been some influential concepts, if anything has. And so you have whole civilizations, the Chinese speak to mind, spring to mind, who have just, they really don't know what that's talking about. Heaven, hell, hmm, curious, those ideas. Uh, Confucianism has nothing like it. Um, probably the most single influential philosophy in, in China and pretty much uh, Southeast Asia. N nothing approximating it until you get very late uh, kind of strange forms of Buddhism that said that uh, there was this you know, northern land, the magic land of gems, 
Diamond Sutra, these kinds of things. Uh, that's a very late entry. And so here's whole conceptual, imaginative worlds that do not exist from one language to another. But again, this is not just the language, it's the community. And, and again, I, when I started the series, it was from this empire of the word. Uh, Ostler is the author of that, and, and he suggested this would be a good thing to do. I don't know if he's right, but we tried it, we'll see. Um, and one of the things he said is the amazing thing about language is it only lives in communities. It's a living thing. I mean, there are dead languages, we can go back and exhume them, but, but, but for as long as they're alive, it's because people have shared them. So you don't get your language as some sort of unmitigated, pure, neutral tool. You get your language generally from your parents, who got it from their parents, who got it from their parents. And so what you get with your language is a lot of culture. And we know cultures are different, right? Everybody clear on this. There's no question that cultures influence your thinking. I mean, it's just, it's just huge. And, and there, so there really is no doubt the degree to which language influences our thinking for good and ill. Um, the, the good side is new ideas can come into a language. When we have neologisms, as they're called, new words, they tend to bring whole intellectual uh, possibilities that did not exist before. So the spread of languages, the encounters of languages, change cultures, change ideals, change outlooks. What do you do when you encounter cultures? The Japanese struggled with this. So the Japanese you know, encounter the West, Admiral Perry and then the British come over, and they want to know what's going on. So they sent a whole bunch of Japanese scholars um, to, the, to, to the Netherlands, oddly enough, but, but for good reasons at the time, to say, hey, what's going on? And the people are like, all right, we'll, we'll, have you, we'll teach you about political economy. And they're like, what? <laughs> political economy, like we have no such word as political economy. All right, well, okay, citizens, look at your citizens. And they're like, what? <laughs> We have no such concept of citizen. Right? So things that had come into uh, European languages with the Renaissance and had been there for percolating for a couple of hundred years that doesn't exist in Japanese. And so they had to come up with all of these terms, and they're wonderful terms, to try and capture in Japanese a sense of what the Dutch were talking about. How well they did this is open to debate, because you look at the text at the time, they're, they're, they're quite interesting, uh, the, the, the struggle that they had conceptually. And then they made up the words, and then they had to try and teach them to other people. And they're like, what are you talking about? Right? This, and it, so it takes time for these ideas to percolate. They can, but if your culture doesn't reinforce them naturally, then they, they remain very abstract. There was a myth about Odysseus that captures this very well, I think, is that the curse of, of the gods was that when he finally reached home, he would not be able to settle until he put an oar on his shoulder and walked inland until someone stopped him and said, what is that you have on your shoulder? <laughs> and then he could stop wandering and settle down. And I like this idea because it's the, the notion that how far do you have to go? For, particularly for the Greeks, this would be totally bizarre because they were such a seafaring people. 
much of which they got from the Phoenicians. Long history. But if you went far enough inland, eventually the theory, sure, you will find somebody who goes, what is that on your shoulder? Or you go, oh, it's an oar. What does that do? Or you put it on a boat. What's a boat? Or it's this big thing you put on water. Like, what kind of water? Like an ocean. So somebody can tell you ocean, but if you've never seen a large lake, what does the ocean mean to you? Nothing. And so a lot of what comes to us in language is an evocation of our concrete experience. I drink a beverage. We call it tea. But if I've never had tea, and someone says in China they drink a beverage called tea, now I have a concept. I can even imagine it. But I don't have it linked to an experience. And so that's very different. And so when, when linguists talk about expressing your experiences, one of the part is how, what kind of experience? Is it an imaginative experience? Is it a physical, concrete experience? Is it a shared social experience? Is it a private experience that you're expressing out? All very different kinds of experiences. Also note, we have the capacity, bizarre, great, wonderful, to imagine things that have never existed and make them into the real world, physically incarnate them. Th this is, wow, to, to take an imaginative concept, an abstract, intellectual, internal conception, and say, I want to make an octa octagonal house. We can do it. I want to make a, an electric car. Well, we can do that. I want to make a ship that goes to the moon. Turns out we can do that. And so not only does the real world influence our language and our linguistic outlook and our possibilities, conversely, our imagination reshapes the real world, which reshapes our experience and our communities, which then, of course, reshapes our language. Think of all the words and ideas and concepts that we got from the, the attempt to go to the moon. Moonshot. Apollo, right? Apollo used to be a god. Now it's a sort of an astronaut collective, right? All the Apollo missions. Uh, satellite. Where did the word satellite come from? All of a sudden, when, when, when the Russians launched Sputnik, all, you know, I, I would, it would be fascinating to see how many times the word satellite had been used in an American newspaper prior to the launch of Sputnik. And how many times it's been used since. All of a sudden, this word, this concept that you know, astronomers used, boom, everybody knows it, because now it's part of our shared communal. It's, it, it's important. It's significant, suddenly. So languages are these growing, vital things that influence us, and then we can influence them the, the other direction. It's not unidirectional. Um, people know who Hertha Müller is. She's a German Nobel laureate, a novelist. Um, she was raised in Romania, was born in Romania, um, so she's sort of Romanian, but she was born in a German-speaking enclave of Romania. And if you know anything about World War II, the whole German-Romanian experience was a bit troubled, let's put it that way. Um, and, and so how, they weren't terribly popular, the, the German settlers in the Romanian. Also, Romania was under a, a cruel, oppressive dictatorship that had no love for the German-speaking uh, minority. And certainly no love for Mueller, who was uh, outspoken and, and aggressive against the uh, totalitarian regime. 
And she has a book that's just out now that has a collection of essays, some of which have been translated and some of which are only available in German, but they're all coming out translated basically right now. Um, and, and one of them is called, uh, oh, now I've got to think about this, uh, uh, Every Language Has Its Own Eyes. And what she means by this is she said she learned German as a child, later she learned Romanian. And so when she writes, she writes, I think exclusively in German, I don't think he's ever written in Romanian, uh, but she knows Romanian, and so she says she's also looking at the same time with the Romanian eyes. It's a very different outlook. And she says there's things she would like to write that she could do in Romanian that she can't do in German feels, emotions, sensitivities. Um, perhaps more importantly, is it, extending from that, is she talks about how language is used to oppress people in dictatorships. There's a reason dictatorships are very big on censorship, very big on the way people are educated, the way they use threats, the way they re rewrite things. So in, in Russian, uh, in, under Stalin, they named the newspaper, right, the party newspaper was called Pravda, which means truth, sort of leaning towards righteousness, this sort of thing. What a great idea. But notice what this does to your language when the word that you have for truth becomes contaminated to mean lies. Right? This, uh, it becomes difficult to express yourself. Uh, Orwell, of course, you know, wrote voluminously about this notion that if you can colonize people's minds with language, then you can prevent certain thoughts, you can encourage other thoughts. The great one in American, or one of the great ones in American history is the transition from the War Department to the Defense Department. <laughs> Right? In theory, it's the same department. In practice, you know, it turns out that we're all in favor of defense. That sounds good. But we're not so much in favor of war, because that sounds bad. Global warming? Bad. Climate change? That's okay. <laughs> turns out they've studied this. This is what people's response is. So are we experiencing global warming or climate change? It turns out it really matters in people's response. And so whoever controls that language controls the sense that our community has about what's going on. Inheritance tax, perfectly acceptable. Death tax, that's an awful thing. <laughs> see, see it's, it's funny on one hand, <laughs> On the other hand, it really influences how people respond to these things. The quote-unquote reality hasn't changed. This is not new or different. The underlying principle hasn't changed. But our feel for it, our conception of it, and our response to it changes dramatically. It, 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 and this is the, what, what Hertha Müller talks about extensively, is the degree to which... Um, uh, repressive ideologies try to control what's thought. Another famous example from history is Erasmus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. No, this is completely wrong Greek translation. 
It is not in the beginning was the word. And Erasmus, who translated the Bible, said that should read, in the beginning was a conversation. And the conversation was with God, give or take. Now, this got him an invitation to the Inquisition, <laughs> where they asked him very politely if he wouldn't rather rethink that translation. <laughs> to which he said, why, yes, I would. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Please don't burn me. Uh, yeah, so, you know, why does this matter? Well, they know why it's matter. Why was it a death sentence to translate the Bible into other languages, the vernacular languages. Because it's going to change it, one, everybody knows this, and two, because then people are going to be able to access it and begin to think about it. So what you can think, the vocabulary you can use, how you can use it, has a dramatic, profound influence on how you view the world, how you experience the world, how you think about it. And then how you kick it back out. And it's a dynamic process. It's not, it's not a unidirectional process. It, 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 it comes and goes. It influences you, and then you go back and influence the world a little bit. Everybody just a little bit. Because, again, language is communal, so if it doesn't have the people, it doesn't live. Right now in China, there's a big, um, if you know the Uyghurs who are sort of a community in China, and, and they're trying to hang on to their language, and the Chinese government is essentially trying to stomp it out. And they're trying to stomp it out because they know as long as the language survives, the cultural unity is likely to survive. If they can get rid of the language, then it's most likely that that cultural coherence will die off. And the historical record of this is perfectly clear. The Chinese government is absolutely correct. When the language goes, the cultural unifying thread seems to fail more often than not, much more often than not. And so they're, they're driving at that. So, so when we talk about a language, we're talking about a, a, community, a community of people who share a social environment, who share outlooks. Um, another example, if you think about in, in English, we tend to think of things as, as right and wrong. This, this, is, this is a peculiar way to look at the world. This, this is, uh, um, again, if you read the Confucius texts, they tend to think it, much more the languages of obligation. Or another way, are you filling your obligations or are you not filling your obligations? Are you filling the rights or are you not filling the rights? Um, or another one is that when Confucius talks about uh, the golden rule, everybody knows the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a very Western perspective. Confucius, which I believe is the earliest uh, pronunciation of this, is do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you is expressed as a not acting, not as an acting. Which is, 
right? On one hand, not a big deal, right? We understand the general principle. But on the other hand, when faced with a problem, our tendency is to say, right, what can we do? Rather than to say, right, what can we refrain from doing? We almost never think this. Faced with environmental peril, should we develop new fuel sources, get electric cars, you know, wind turbines, hydrogen energy, re new nuclear, clean coal. There's a term for you, <laughs> clean coal, right? Sounds so much better than regular coal, right? It's clean coal, you know? That, that, that's right, but what don't we ever talk about? You know, we, we tend to talk very little about, hey, let's not use energy. That would be a start. No, we're not. We, we just, it doesn't seem. What can we stop doing? We could stop wasting energy. We could invest in not wasting. No, see, that's a terrible idea. We hate that idea. That sounds like passivity and wrongness. And when we're all, no, we need to act. We have to do. We have to be out struggling. This is, again, this is a very, very ancient, this is sort of the Greek, particularly Latin tradition. If anybody's ever studied Latin, I can't imagine how a language could be more dynamic. It's all verbs. It's just one verb after another verb after another verb. Doing, being, running, jumping, hitting, clubbing, killing, sleeping, whatever it is, it's, you're just, it's action all the time. Action, 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 action. Is it an incredibly vibrant feel? And I don't know how else to say it, but feel. Much more so than, than, than English. Even though, you know, in theory, a, a related language. Well, not in theory, in practice. And so we've covered, you know, vast swaths of the world and vast swaths of world history. And on one hand, I, 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 did I put the dates on here? I didn't put the dates. I want to put the dates of... Um, the earliest language, I, I should have done that. But so if we go back about 3000 BC, so 5,000 years ago, you get to the oldest, which is Sumerian, um, and, and, and a little bit later is hieroglyphics. They may have developed roughly at the same time. Sumerian probably came earlier, but you know, historical record, archeological record, debatable. Um, what's astounding is we can still understand this. We can read the Epic of Gilgamesh today across 5,000 years and tremendous, profound, fundamental cultural exchange and change and dynamism. And lots of Gilgamesh today resonates. You just under, he doesn't want to die. He wants to live forever. His friend has died. And, and it makes him sad. It makes him miserable. And finally, he ends up coming back and saying, there's nothing for it. The lot of man is to die. So drink your wine, love your wife, have your children, sing your song. That's all we can do. 5,000 years ago, you know, 5,000 years later. We can still understand that. But there's a lot we don't get. There's whole passages that are difficult to understand. We don't know how to translate. Because there has been such profound change. So on one hand, it speaks to the continuity of the human experience, which is real. But on the other hand, it highlights this tension that, that exists between uh, 
a different mode of life, a completely different outlook on how the world should be, on just the cultural assumptions of what it means to live, what it means to live a good life, what it means to be human. This is widely divergent. And so both of those get communicated to us across 5,000 years. It's extraordinary. Um, another aspect of this that people talk about in, in terms of language is can there be bad language? And, and generally, not bad language like cussing, but, but bad language like a language that's poorly formed or people use the language incorrectly, hence it's bad. Generally, the debate sort of breaks down between the classicists who say, well, you need a well-formed rule-guided language for various reasons, and, and the sort of people who say, no, languages evolve, and, 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 and it's you know, sort of free love, and this is what goes on. Um, missing from this, again, Hertha Mueller is, is a person who will talk about this um, when, when the book comes out, I'm sure, is the notion of, well, what is language for again? If, if language is a tool, which in many ways it is, you can think of it this way, does it do its job? If it does its job, then it's a good language. If it doesn't do its job, then it's a bad language. One of the primary tools of language, and one of the beauties of it, is the capacity for me or you to think something, to feel something, to experience something, and then communicate it to somebody else. And in some way, allow them, this is the magic of it, to internalize it. To, to feel it for themselves, some component of this. I think we vastly underestimate how truly uh, preposterous this is. Right? The, the classic example, of course, is pornography. So, so people write words on a page that can cause people to become sexually aroused. Think how strange that is. <laughs> this, make, this really makes no sense. And written pornography has been popular for as long as we have the written word. It goes all the way back. But it's not just pornography. Anger, enthusiasms, memories, tears, weeping. There's you know, countless passages of people reading something and weeping. That you can write words, which are, we know are just abstract symbols, for shared concepts, but they can be organized in such a way that you can weep or feel joy. How is this possible? It's an extraordinary, and again, widely overlooked power of language. If your language has that power to communicate in this way, well, I think you've got a good language. If you don't, then something is wrong someplace. And this, again, is the model of the totalitarian use of language. Is um, Famously, when the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union sort of breaks up, Solzhenitsyn, after being absent for 40 years, I think, of this, anyway, a very long time, returns to Russia. And he gives these speeches. And what people remarked most about his speeches was his Russian because the Russian language had been sort of corrupted by the bureaucrats for another 20, 30, 40 years. And he spoke this cleaner, pure, more direct form of Russian, 
And, and, and people commented on it just all over the place in the Russian press at the time, because they were astounded. They're like, oh, that's Russian. This is the Russian that communicates, that moves us. Right? If you get the 30-volume collected speeches of Leonid Brezhnev, that's an actual thing, by the way. No, I didn't make that up. Uh, as, ter as terrifying as that is. Um, you are not going to be moved to weep. Well, potentially moved to weep. Uh, uh, but not for the beauty of the prose. Right? Not from the eloquence of, of, of Mr. Brezhnev and his fine writing. Uh, and that colonization of an entire language and of an entire linguistic experience. The, this is why the, the, the underground press, people always say, oh, you know, everybody ignores the press today. In a way, sure, it's a, maybe it's a good sign. But if we were starved for language that communicated, the underground press would thrive again. Because people wanted to read the Sultanates and they wanted to read the classics that kept alive this living, breathing language that communicated powerfully to them. So that's, that's the judge of a healthy language and an unhealthy language, of a strong language and a weak language, of one that's failing and one that's working, but still has the power and the opportunity to communicate and move. If you can deploy it to express yourself, make yourself understood, then excellent. If not, and again, this is, this is quite common in history, then, then you have trouble. Then something has gone seriously wrong. Another example of people are familiar with the lyrical ballads, Coleridge and, and Wordsworth teaming up to write some crazy poetry out there in, in, the, in the woods of England. Um, what they said is, they said this is in the preface to it, they said, can we compose powerful poetry in the language and from the experience of essentially the middle class, of more regular people. Because what had been happening is people had been writing this sort of high-flown, Latinate, classically influenced poetry, which, you know, some of it's good, a lot of it not very good. And they said, this doesn't have the power, it doesn't excite people, it doesn't move people like we think it should. So they said they wanted to try something new. And what they came up with was the experiment that is the, famously the lyrical ballads and then what follows in the romantic movement. So that you don't describe a fish as what is the, 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 the finned tribe, I think, was sort of the classic example, right? A fish was referred to as a finned tribe. No, you called a fish a fish because that's what people called fish. And you called apple trees not the tree from the Garden of Eden from whence, you know, blah, blah, no. It's an apple tree right there, ladies and gentlemen. Your experiences with the physical world translated into a language that you could feel and read and write and understand directly, viscerally, immediately. That's a healthy language. And, in, you know, in a lot of ways, people say this was a big reinvigoration of the literature of England because it did bring all of this language of immediate direct experience, immediate real places, the fish, the rocks, the trees, the sunsets, the water, the light of these places into poetry for more or less the first time. And, you know, sort of to famous effect. So there's, you know, this, this ongoing tension. Is it dynamic? Is it real? Is it working? 
Um, another aspect of this, I'm just sort of with various aspects of it, is as we move to a world that is more interconnected than we talked about last time, lots of communication, you know, do, does it become more or less palpable when we communicate? I mean, this is, I'm always interested in this question. If you look at the bestsellers uh, at any given time uh, in the United States, and pretty much in, in, in most languages, unfortunately, they tend to be written at a very low level of vocabulary. In fact, now in the United States, which I think is an interesting trend, sort of kicked off by Harry Potter, um, all of your best-selling books are written for children. <laughs> which is an interesting notion when you think about language. Now, one way to ponder this is to go, which is it's a common thought, it's like, wow, we're really getting dumb. Right? That we're really, because if the only thing that we can read collectively it are things written for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, then that's troubling, right? Perhaps we're becoming massively illiterate. And this, is, this does not bode well for, for an increasingly complex world if we can't communicate beyond the fourth or fifth or sixth grade world. Uh, interestingly, by the way, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is written at like a sixth or seventh grade reading level. So it's sort of like pornography for kids. It's sort of interesting, an interesting concept, I think. It's been a long time coming. I think a big market there. Um, but, but obviously, because it's sold to millions and millions and millions. Um, but another way of thinking about this, I think a less depressing way, is to, is to think that the last shared experience that we can all appeal to and that communicates to us was when we were five, fifth grade, sixth grade, or seventh grade. Because in a world that's so incredibly diverse, so incredibly specialized, geographically remote, our commonalities fray really early. Maybe, maybe you track into a special school for science and technology. Maybe you move from one area of a country to another area of a country that has a whole different way of of, of living, and so you start to change your life. Maybe you move to a different country. You go to college with people you don't know, and you live differently, and you pursue one specialized field that you work on, and somebody else is. How are we supposed to communicate? What do we share in common anymore? Interesting, in a lot of ways, maybe not very much. And so maybe these books that have the broad appeal at this very low level of, of writing is, is because they appeal to the most basic things, which are the last things we have in common. That the shared world of, of nature and the rural experience, which even in Coleridge and Wordsworth's day, is fading. And the lyrical ballads came out, and people in London read it sort of with a longing for what was lost, right? Back, you know, 200 years ago, they were in London going, oh, wow the sort of lost countryside. And then they decided maybe we should move out to the countryside and it sort of began the romantic rediscovery that things exist outside the city. Um, starts taking place. But, you know, what would we appeal to now? What, what is the shared communal values? 
it, it, classically, if you've anybody seen commercials for SUVs, all the sport utility vehicles, and they always show people off driving, you know, in the mud and the dirt and the grass, actually where they probably shouldn't be driving is what they really show. Um, the numbers are, are astonishing, like 95% of, of SUVs never leave a paved road. And so if you think of a world in which increasingly most of the population lives in cities, in fact lives in very, very large cities, what the hell does their day-to-day -day experience have to do with someone who lives in, in a rural community? That, where they have, in New York City, you know, people have, that, they, they bring cows in and people look at them. <laughs> this, this is true. This, this, this is absolutely true. Because why would you see a cow in New York City? What possible reason would there be for a cow to be around? Some sad, lost cow, right? <laughs> uh, you know, so what is that experience? How do you communicate that experience? You can write for someone in the city, perhaps. You can write for someone in rurally. But hard to write a bestseller that's going to span our incredibly variegated experiences of the modern world. You can see it in our politics, again, back to the language influencing your world outlook, where, you know, totally different takes. Is gun control a perfectly reasonable, obvious solution to a social problem or a totalitarian idea to repress us and steal everything from us and our children? It really matters where you live. And where you live, it's, it's just, it's, it, the, the, the switch is quite fascinating and very intense. Same issues, completely different perspective. In theory, the same language. In practice, completely different understanding of it. How do you bridge those gaps? It, it, in theory, you might be able to bridge it by appealing to some general conception of, of the world, but so far no one has seemed to be able to pull it off, at least not recently. And what used to be classic great works of literature appealed to a tiny minority that ran the show. Right? And so when you get mass literacy, which we have in the modern world, all to the good, how do you appeal to a mass audience? What do they share? A lot of the Renaissance classics appealed to the people because they spoke Latin, which wasn't even the vernacular language. Well, that's not going to be a bestseller, right? When you're <laughs> writing in a language that nobody reads, you're, you're interfering with your marketing possibilities. Um, but, but, you know, that sort of, these gaps develop. Are we getting closer together or are we getting farther apart? If you look right now all over the world, by the way, not just in China, uh, dealing with the, with the Uyghurs, uh, Scotland has, is having a referendum coming up, I think, right? Is it this fall, this fall for, for Scottish separation? Why? Right? It, it turns out part of it is cultural communal identification. We want to break away because we're not English. Different language, different history, different communal identity. And this is going on all over the world. That on one hand, we're more interconnected on the other hand, we seem to be creating a greater sense of local, regional, tribal, ethnic identity. Um, this, people speculate on why this is. Um, part of it, again, is clearly linguistic. Many, many, many of these groups are being focused on language.
They're saying, look, we speak Basque. I mean, the Basques are going separate, right? I mean, right now in Spain, they're just setting up their own country. As the, always. As always. But I mean, it, they're really, and there's a, there's a question whether or not Catalonia, the whole place is going to fragment, that they may very soon become a loose confederation, even looser confederation, based on languages. That's what they're basing it on, not geographic boundaries to, to a certain extent. In the Ukraine right now, you may be aware there's a little bit of, of, of trouble. Um, and, and the dividing line is clearly, clearly linguistic. If you speak Russian, the chances of you thinking that, yeah, we ought to rejoin Russia, go up dramatically. If you do not speak Russian, the chances of you thinking that Russia ought to take part of the Ukraine, go down <laughs> dramatically. It's just, it's just that clear. And so that, that, that fragmentation line is not geographic, moderately historical, but not that strongly historical, powerfully, powerfully linguistic. So today, again, as we move to global communication, as we have you know, English as the uber language, we still have this incredible association with, with the languages that, that we're raised with, that we know. Again, think of the power of, of American uh, monolingualism. We, 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 there's only what we actually resist learning other languages. I think it's this powerful tribal expression. It's, it's not a passive thing. It's not like we go, oh, well, no, we're like, we don't have to. You can't make us because part of our identity is English and we don't want to sacrifice that. We don't want you to take that from us. We would see it as an imposition. Almost no other language sees this as an imposition to learn a second language. But, you know, for us, it is, is powerfully that way. Um, if you look again at the approximate numbers of speakers of the language, I put that little graph there. Um, by the way, this, this is a hugely variable number. It is interesting how wide the, the numbers are assigned by, by re reputable researchers. So let me just say this is open to broadly different interpretations. But this is a rough guesstimate of, of this. Uh, and these rankings are not absolute. But of course, I like the pie chart because it shows China with its uh, 1.2 uh, well, million uh, speakers. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> but what's fascinating about this is they're almost, I mean, you could just say all of them with a, just a tiny sliver of an exception, are geographically coherent, con continued. They're, they're one spot. Essentially, no one who does not live in China or one of the surrounding countries speaks Chinese. That, that would be a, the, the closest approximation. Um, but if you look at the next most common language in the world, Spanish at 322 million, exactly the opposite. As I mentioned in the Spanish language, it turns out that no one in Spain actually speaks Spanish. Only people who don't live in Spain speak Spanish. Uh, the United States is, is on the track, if we haven't already, going to pass Spain for Spanish language speakers. We're, 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 we're more or less tied with them now, and, and we're going to pass them very soon, which is strange to think that we would have more. But it turns out that, again, Spain's not that big population-wise, and a lot of the people in Spain don't actually speak Spanish as their first language. So this is, you know, it's, 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 right? And yet they're the second most popular. So it turns out that you can have 
a lot of speakers of your language by being a, a coherent geographical entity, which China has been for 4,000 years. Um, literally 4,000 years, not, not, but quite, quite literally. The oldest Chinese texts go back to about 1200 BC. Um, and so the Chinese language has been written continuously um, in, 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 in evolving from that early form for at least 3,000 years. So that's it's a long run, the longest going, but has never spread. Uh, then you get English, and now English is one of the huge variables because some people say it's the second most, but it depends on how you score English as a second language speakers and all this. But, um, you know, at least 300 plus million. Uh, notice there's over 300 million people in the United States. So how do we only end up with 309 million English speakers here? Because so many of them speak Spanish and other languages. Everybody speaks, I mean, America is nothing if not linguistically rich. We have all the languages here, which I think is great. And then you get Arabic. Um, but again, so English has been hugely successful in America, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, and a few other places. But as a second language, of course, spanning the globe. Um, so much different from Chinese again. Arabic. Uh, basically throughout the Islamic community, the, the, the Islamic cultural heritage, uh, because Arabic is the, is the language of, of Islam, of course, and so you cannot underestimate that. So lots of first language speakers, and then lots of uh, speakers with Islam. And then Hindi, Portuguese, again, Portuguese, how the hell is Portuguese rate so high? Because of Brazil. Are they speaking Portuguese in Brazil? You know, that's one of those, yeah, it depends how you score, right? I mean, they're certainly speaking a lovely language, uh, uh, and it's based on Portuguese. And then Bengali, of course, which is also in India. India has lots of languages. Um, Russian, huge, 145 million. Again, almost entirely geographically dependent. Russian turns out to be like Chinese. If you don't live in the coherent geographic area of Russia, the chances that you speak Russian are zero, not actually zero, but very close to it. So it, it's very much more like Chinese. Japanese, the same way. If you don't live in the islands of, of, of Japan, you don't speak Japanese. That's where people speak Japanese. Um, and then German, also uh, a few areas that it's spread to, but, but not very many. And so when you, we look out at the world and we think, wow, you know, English is dominant. Well, maybe. Chinese, lots of speakers. Spanish, lots of speakers. Well, what difference does it make? This is, this is sort of the, the big question, right? Does it make any difference? In one sense, it, it really does, I think. Uh, like I said, the Chinese, after 4,000 years, or 3,200 years of continuous usage of Chinese in the geographic area of, of, of China and its sort of small empire there, there's no reason to expect that to stop at any time. Curiously, there's no reason to expect it to spread beyond its borders, which is a fascinating situation. Um, there's not that many English speakers, and there's not going to be that many more. The, the population of the English-speaking world has, has capped out. There's going to be no growth population-wise. And in fact, it's probably starting to dwindle already. So if you look at just population numbers, uh, China's going to gain some more. Anybody know who, where all the population growth is going to come from? 
Africa. Africa has about a billion people right now, give or take. Um, by the end of, I think, 2050 or 2060, I think Africa is expected to have about 3 billion. 4 billion. So their, their population is, 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 is looking like it's on the road to, to tripling. So one thing, if we look at this chart in 40 or 50 years, Africa is probably going to develop some sort of regional language of first utility. If it's English, well, there's going to be a lot more English speakers. It could possibly be. Think how strange that would be if it ends up being English. That would be really weird because there would be far, far, far more Africans speaking English than there would be Americans or British, which would mean that in about 100 years, we wouldn't recognize English anymore because whatever the Africans started doing would, would come to swamp most of it. So that would be a fascinating development. But very soon on this list, demographics suggest quite strongly that we're going to see the rise of a prominent African language or two, which would be a new thing in the world. And if you go back to what we were talking about before, if we assume that the African experience, one, is human, which I think it why wouldn't we assume that? That means it should be communicable. But if we assume also that it's unique in its culture, its heritage, its history, and its location, that means it should have something new to communicate. See, we're not done yet. The human experience isn't finished yet. Language isn't finished yet. It's going to grow and change. And, and if we add another 3 billion people on the African continent, this is going to influence us. But that's considered... That's a assuming a continuation of present birth rates. Mm. And as people urbanize, they tend to have fewer children, save their money, buy drugs and houses. You know, this is assuming that the birth rates stay where they are today, which yeah. is to say about, yeah. about replacement rate. The, the world's birth rate is stabilized. Um, we're, the, 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 we aren't having more children. We're only having children to replace the people that are alive. In Africa, too? And everywhere in the world, yeah. It's pretty pretty stable all over the world. About 2.2 to 2.3 children, I think, is the world average. Um, and so um, that the population now looks to cap out at about 11 billion. But when it caps out at about 11 billion, about 4 billion of them are going to be in Africa. Three to four, which, which, is, which is an astounding thing to, to ponder. But there is no predominant language. There is no predominant language, but it, history suggests quite strongly that when a region experiences the kind of growth and the kind of powerful economic growth that Africa is going through right now, that they, they, they very well may. And that's why I suggest that with, um, with, with several billion people on the continent, something is going to come and rise up to the top here. Again, literally in 50 years or 60 years, um, an African language could be second, third, fourth most spoken in the world. So the dynamics of, of, of language haven't changed. All the language we've looked at in history, some have risen, dominated, and failed. Others have spread regionally and failed. Some have spread regionally like Chinese and then stayed there. Chinese has grown because the number of Chinese native-born speakers has grown, not because China has gone anywhere. They've expanded a little bit, not that much. Spanish has grown because Spanish, the Spanish went all over the world. Is that sustainable? Will those diverse linguistic communities maintain the language? 
So far, it looks like it will, but it's not clear. So I guess that's where to, to end up, is that the story of language, the story of world languages is not finished. It's not set in stone. What this chart right here looks like today, Chinese 1, Spanish, English, Arabic, almost certainly in 40 years, which is, say, uh, not too long, will look different. Uh, English could take a nosedive. Spanish could expand. Um, India could, could invoke, they just elected a BJP um, prime minister, or I think they're about to. Um, if, it, it, and if they could pull off what they would like to do, they would like to sort of have a primary language in India. Well, if they do that, well, you're going to have a billion people in, in about 20 years speaking one language, which they don't have today. I don't, I, I, it seems unlikely they'd be able to do that, but if they could, that would dramatically change the linguistic structure of the world. And so we're not done. The way the world is today, we're not finished. How language changes and evolves has to do with us, how we use language, how the world politics experiences change, um, and then random chance that, that history imposes. So again, that's two years. So for two years, we've gone through, I think, 15 or 16 different languages that have developed, risen, died, some still living, all changing. But hopefully one thing that is clear is that no language stops. If, it's, if language stops, it dies. Uh, and so we know it's going to change. We know that in 20 years this will look different. Languages will be used differently and they'll look differently. We know 20 years after that they'll be different. What? I don't know. Other than, like I said, my guess that one major African language or maybe two will, will rise up the charts very soon. I think, I think we're going to see this very soon, which I think will be fascinating. And alt is a good in some ways. Um, yeah, so there you go, language. Thank you very much.